Good morning, friends. You've tuned into Faith Communications of Erie Christian Fellowship Church. We're delighted that you joined us today. Our hope is that today's message will help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we listen to today's message, keep in mind that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now let's go right into today's broadcast. All right, everyone. I love the socialization, the connections. What's that, man? That's right. All right, well, welcome to a very unique and awesome Wednesday night service that we have planned. Uh, As a lot of you know, we have a guest speaker uh, tonight, and we are so excited and pleased to have him. And if you don't know this man, in which I just met him for the first time this evening, but he and his family go way back, way back in the roots of this church. And they, his parents actually helped, actually really found Erie Christian Fellowship Church and Grace Fellowship Church, and they are just part of, really part of the founding families of this church. And I also heard a rumor that maybe someone in the audience had you in Sunday school. And I think that, I don't know if he said that you slept or you were awake the whole time or... We won't get into that here. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe you and your brother. What's that? Uh, Paul. Brother Paul Luciano. So let me just do a quick introduction. Dr. Craig Van Busick. Uh, he is the editor of content for inspiration.org, uh, a contributing writer for several magazines, um, as well as CBN.com. In fact, his article regarding a little miracle that may have occurred Sometime back in September of last year is what CBN caught or picked up, uh, which led to the video, which led to the testimony, which led to, which is leading to more and more. So that video just played, if you haven't seen it, but uh, Pastor and Pam's testimony, you can find it on CBN.com uh, as well, which is also on the 700 Club. Author of several books, uh, three of those books, maybe there's more, but there's three of those books available. Uh, after church tonight, out in the uh, lobby there, uh, Janie Johnson will be back there. Uh, we currently take cash or check, uh, so hopefully you have cash or check for those books back there. And uh, he is currently, the most, most uh, current book he's written is called I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman, The Rebirth of Israel. And he's going to be sharing about that this evening, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Craig Van Busick. It is awesome to be in the House of Miracles. This was the room, am I right, where the prayer went up? And uh, right in this, uh, well, I'm right in the hot spot, (laughs) feeling it tonight. So it is an honor and a pleasure and honor and pleasure to see my dear friends, Pastor Jim, Pastor Pam. Uh, We go back a long, long way. Uh, I actually worked at Faith Bookstore for a faith Bible bookstore on 38th Street for a year while I was finishing up college. And, uh, and then, of course, Paul Luciano, his family, and I hung out together for years in middle school, high school, youth group, the whole thing. And, and I, there are many other familiar faces here tonight, so greetings to you all. Israel's in the news. Have you noticed that? It is in the news constantly. Why? Well, we all know why. 
because it's the apple of God's eye and it is uh, God never replaced the covenant that he has with Israel. We are not the replacement of Israel. We are grafted in, the Bible says quite clearly, to Israel. And uh, Paul said, don't be full of pride in thinking that we are something special. (laughs) We're special in God's eyes individually, but we're grafted into the root of Israel. And Winston Churchill, anybody ever hear of him? Yeah. Winston Churchill warned the British people, and he said, just as God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. He said that is not only true for individuals, but it's true for nations as well. Winston Churchill, pretty good authority, right? So what happened, here's the book that Pastor Jason was referring to, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel. And the way that this all uh, occurred uh, was in 1988, I was at Grace Fellowship Church, and a friend, Joe Maloney, handed me a cassette from a group called Friends of Israel. And it told the story of Harry S. Truman and his Jewish business partner. How many of you knew that Harry Truman had a men's clothing store? And his partner was a man named Eddie Jacobson, who just happened to be Jewish. You say, oh, isn't that nice? Well, that relationship helped with the establishment of Israel, which changed the world. I didn't know that until I got that cassette tape, and I listened to it, and I went, wow, this is amazing. And I never forgot it. It's such an interesting story. And so in 2012, I was in a church service very similar to this. We were worshiping, and all of a sudden, the Spirit came upon me in such a way where you just know that it's God, and it's just one point off of being audible. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly, and he said, I want you to write the book about Harry Truman and Eddie Jacobson, which I had been thinking about for a long time, um, but he gave me marching orders. And he said, the, my people are about, Israel, are about to come into a higher level of persecution. And I want people to see that my hand was upon the rebirth of Israel so that they'll know that my hand is upon them today. That's why I wrote the book. That was 2012. And five years later, after five years of research and writing, Uh, I was able to uh, secure a contract with LPC Books out of Raleigh, North Carolina, and the book came out this April. Now, President Truman, if you don't know this already, was his mother referred to the family as Lightfoot Baptists. And the reason was they were Baptists who also kind of liked to dance, and they liked to have some fun. And so Harry Truman grew up in the church, and he read through the Bible five or six times in his lifetime. He knew the Bible well. He also knew history extremely well. He knew the history of the Middle East as well or better than the people in the State Department at that time. And you say, why? Why would this guy know so much? He never went to college. He was a failed businessman. That business thrived for the first year they were together, the, he and Eddie. 
But the second year, there was a post-war recession, and the business tanked. And that's when he went into politics and started his political career. But before that, he had been a farmer for 10 years, and he said, we always owed money to the bank. We never were booming and prosperous. So why would this guy know so much? Well, it was because he had he was almost blind. And you say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, he had Coke bottle bottom glasses. You know those glasses that are so thick that they magnify your eyes? If you ever saw a picture of Harry Truman without his glasses, he has these beady little, you know, weasel-like eyes. But with the glasses on, they get really big. So what happened is his parents were not very wealthy farmers, and they struggled all the time. And yet Harry was almost blind. And so they went and they took him to the doctor. The doctor said he needs this prescription. It was very expensive to buy these glasses. And so they said, Harry, you will not play sports or roughhouse like the other kids. You, we cannot afford to buy you another pair of glasses. So you're going to read and play the piano. And if you know, Harry... Truman was a great piano player. He actually thought about becoming a professional piano player. He was that good. But he loved biography, and he loved history. And like I already said, he read through the Bible several times. And so he used to quote this scripture from Genesis 17, 8. He said, And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. little bit of history. Most people know, most people in the church know, that in A.D. 70, the Romans moved in to overturn, well, they actually moved in a couple of years, but it took them two years to overthrow a revolt that was taking place. The Jews were tired of being under Roman rule, and so they fought against the Romans, and the Romans crushed them. And in AD 70, they destroyed the second temple. The temple where Jesus uh, taught and was, did uh, miracles and so forth, that was the temple that the Romans overthrew. The only thing left was the foundation. The original temple was on Mount Moriah, which is a rounded mount. And then that one was replaced, as we know, by King Herod the Great. Uh, he was just great because he made some great buildings. Other than that, he wasn't so great. But he's known as Herod the Great. And he, what he did was he created this rectangular foundation all the way around the mountain and then backfilled in around the mountain and made a flat platform and they built the temple on that. Well, all of that is still there today. And so that foundation wall, we call it the Western Wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. That was the wall that was that rectangle around the original mount. And they built the second temple. The Romans broke it all up except for the platform, which remained. They pushed most of the Jews out of uh, the land. Now, the land at that time was still called Judea, or it was called Eretz Israel. The Jews called it Eretz Israel. And so everything went along for a few years, and then there was another uprising. Now, we don't really talk about this next uprising, but it happened 60 years later. It was called the Barcoba Uprising or Revolt in AD 132. This was the one where the Romans said, enough. And they pushed 
either they pushed out the Jews or they killed them. And the only Jew, there was just a handful of Jews left in the Jewish sector of Jerusalem, but everyone else was sent to the winds. And at that time, Emperor Hadrian said, we do not want the Jews here again. And so they not only pushed the Jews out, but they changed the name. Does anybody know what they changed the name to? The Romans? Syria, Palestinia. Sound familiar? Palestine is what it became. It became shortened to Palestine. Now, where did they come up with that name? You ever wonder that? Well, who were the enemies, the arch enemies of the Jews in the Old Testament? The Philistines. And so they named the land after Israel's enemies to rub their noses in their defeat. And so the land became known as Palestine, but it was never Palestine. That is a fake name that the Romans gave to, uh, out of spite. And so we move forward, and there was in um, 395 A.D. is when the empire split, and there was an eastern empire and there was a western empire. The, em the eastern Roman empire became known as Byzantine or Byzantine. And so the Byzantine emperor, uh, empire took place and they took control of Palestine. And that continued for about uh, 250 years. And then the Muslim armies started to move. And in 636 A.D., the Muslims defeated the Byzantines, and that's when the Muslims took over Palestine for the first time, 636 A.D. Now, here's something important as you're watching the news to understand. In Muslim law and under the Koran, there's a concept by which any time Islam defeats land and occupies that land, they consider it to be part of Islam forever. Why? Why did Yasser Arafat not accept the unbelievably generous terms given to him by Prime Minister Barack in the, in the uh, Oslo Accords, work, working with Bill Clinton? It was unbelievable how much they were going to give away, how much land and authority that they were going to give away. And Yasser Arafat said, no. Why is it that three different times the Palestinian Arabs, and I say that to decipher from the Palestinian Jews, did you know that there are Jewish Palestinians? In fact, everyone in Israel could technically be called a Palestinian of one recognition or not because it was part of the province of Palestine under the Ottoman Empire. I'm going to get a swig here, just a second. So when I was in Israel, whoops, are we here? There we are. When I was in Israel in 2003, my, uh, the tour guide on the bus said, I am, my birth certificate says Palestinian. He said, I am a Palestinian. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, the British during World War I promised all of the province or like a state of Palestine to who? To the Jews. It was called the Balfour Declaration. That was the size of Pennsylvania. But 
later on, because the French came in and kicked King Faisal off the throne in Syria, now the British had a problem because they had Faisal, who was played by Alex Guinness in Lawrence of Arabia, by the way, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Faisal now doesn't have a throne. They had, they had promised his brother, Prince Abdullah, the throne of Iraq. And his brother, Abdullah, had raised an army and was going to go against the French. And the British were like, they had just finished World War I and said, we don't need another war. And so Winston Churchill came in over a weekend, and they met in Egypt, and Winston Churchill said, listen, why don't we give Faisal Iraq, since the French are now in Syria, and let's split Palestine down through the Jordan River. Everything to the west, on the west bank, we'll give to the Jews. And everything across or trans-Jordan, we'll give to Abdullah. And so King Abdullah I, what's the name of the king today? King Abdullah. It's the great-grandson of this guy. King Abdullah I was given two-thirds of the province of Palestine that had originally been promised to the Jews. Now, there was a group of Jews who rose up and said, we're going to fight this. But most of the Jews said, listen, you know, at least we've got one-third. <laughs> let's, let's get what we can get for the first time in almost 2,000 years. And so they went along with it. And that's where the word, or the nation of Transjordan, that was how it was born. And then it just became Jordan. But I'm fast-forwarding a little bit here. Let's go back to, we were at the Muslims defeat the Byzantines, right? And it becomes Muslim land for the first time. And in their mind, it's still Muslim land. That's where we went from. So then around uh, the year 1000, the Seljuk Turks uh, defeated the uh, Egyptian Muslim armies and took over. And then in 1099, right around that time, was uh, what we know as the Crusades. And the emperor of the Byzantine Empire reached out to Pope Urban and said, the Muslims are too strong, we can't beat them, we need your help. And they raised Christian knights, and we know that some of that was really awful. But it was in reaction to what had happened with the Muslim armies coming in. And so in 1099, the crusaders took over the land of Israel, and they created a, they, they called it the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and it became a Christian nation for about 100 years. And then after that, Saladin came in, and in 1184, uh, Saladin took over control from the Crusaders. 1250, uh, the Egyptian Mamluks took over from, uh, from Saladin's group. And then in 1517, from the Mamluks, the Ottoman Turks took over. Now, in all of this time, there was a remnant of Jews that were still in the land, but primarily it was being run by the Muslims. And when the Ottoman Empire took over, there was uh, almost a feeling of we don't care at all about this land, except to gather taxes. And so the Turks, remember, Turks and Arabs are two different people groups. And so the Turks were like, eh, let the Arabs have it. 
And yet the Arabs had plenty of other countries and plenty of other, other areas. And so what happened is the Turks would tax according to certain specific um, ways of judging. And one of the ways that they would raise your taxes if you ha- is if you had trees on your land. They would count the number of trees and they would equate that because it's a desert area. So if you had trees on your land, they would equate that with rich, riches and your taxes would go up. This is according to Doug Hershey in the book uh, Israel Rising. He takes uh, tours over to Israel and he said that one time he discovered this because he always wondered, how could the land have become so desolate? Because it went from a land flowing with milk and honey, right? And they had crops and they had, you know, huge grapes and all that to this desert. Well, it was because people cut down their trees to cut their taxes. That was one of the reasons. It was also just that nobody considered it home. And this is the one of the things when people say that the Jews stole quote-unquote, Palestine, something that never existed really, from the Arabs or the Palestinians. Now remember, there was never ever a group called the Palestinians. They are Palestinian Arabs and there are Palestinian Jews. Okay, we, we need to understand the truth of what really happened to understand what really is happening now. Okay, so when people say that the Jews stole Palestine from the Palestinians, there's untruth in just that statement, okay? But if you were to say the Jews stole Palestine from the Arab Palestinians, well, okay, we could talk about that. I ask people, how many Arab countries are there? Who knows? 22. 22. It goes from Morocco over on the Atlantic coast all the way over to Iran all the way up to Turkey, all the way down to Yemen, right? That's a lot of land. That's about the size of the United States. Then I ask, how many Muslim countries are there? Anybody? Anyone? 50 in the world that are primarily Muslim countries. How many Jewish countries are there? And how big is it? The size of New Jersey. And yet they want to take that away. They want to say, this isn't your land, even though the Jews have been there for more than 3,000 years. Has anybody seen the most recent archaeological discovery? It was just announced, I think, last week. The Arch, the Arch of David. (laughs) It is an archway that was in one of the biblical towns mentioned in the Bible during the reign of King David. You can't argue with that. That's in stone. They have found, uh, when I was in Israel... The tour guide said, we think that David and Solomon are real, but we're not sure. Now they're sure. The archaeological evidence has proven it. It was kind of interesting, though, because we were in Tel Aviv, and he pointed up on this big government building, and on the side was this massive Star of David. And he said, do you know how the Star of David became the Star of David? Anybody know that story? Well, it's a triangle with another triangle upside down on top of it. Am I right? And he said, in ancient Hebrew, the letter D was a triangle. D-A-V-I-D, Star of David. And they have found the Star of David in these ancient archways 
They have found it in coins. They have found it in clay, different clay things that they've dug up. This is no longer a question of if. It's, it's 100% proven now. There's no doubt about it. And yet, the size of New Jersey, you've got 22 countries. You Muslims have 50 countries. We Jews have one the size of New Jersey. You want to take that from us? Even though God said this will be your land forever. So it's not just about the biblical promise or the theology. It's all about, it's also about archaeology. It's also about history. And it's also about why don't we ask Egypt to give up their ancient land? Or China? Or India? Because those are the only other nations that are that old. We don't ask for that because they never got pushed out of their land. Though the Jews did. The amazing thing and Sid Roth said this in, uh, in endorsing the book. He said, uh, one of the greatest proofs that there is a God is that the people of Israel came together and reformed their nation after nearly 2,000 years according to and in fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, this is what uh, Palestine the province of Palestine under the Ottoman Empire looked like in 1867 when Mark Twain, anybody hear of him, Mark Twain, yeah? Uh, he went and visited there as a journalist. Uh, back in those days, these journalists would travel around and they would be like travel writers and they'd send back stories to their newspaper because that was all the reading, you know, you read newspaper, you read magazine, you read book, that was the entertainment or you went to the theater uh, and so people would love to receive these stories from other lands, exotic, faraway, exciting places. And so Mark Twain got this gig, which was a good gig. He got on this paddle boat that went across the Atlantic and then went all the way around the Mediterranean. And at every stop, Rome and in, you know, uh, Constantinople and in Israel and in Egypt and all the way around, he um, sent back these articles that he wrote. And then a couple of years later, he put them all together. Anybody know what it became? Innocence Abroad, The Innocence Abroad, that book. And so you can read his eyewitness accounts from 1867. And this is what he wrote, which is in The Innocence Abroad. He described uh, Israel, or, or Palestine as it was called at that time, as, quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. As he prepared to leave the Holy Land, Twain wrote his final thoughts. Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren, they are dull of color, they are unpicturesque in shape, the valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. This was Palestine in the 1800s. How did it change? Has anybody been there today? Because today it is brimming with life in all directions. How did it change? Well, in, eight, in the 1880s, Tsar Alexander was assassinated. 
And one of the assassins was a Jewish girl. And the Russian government said, well, we will pin it on the Jews, even though it was only one of the assassins. And they unleashed hell on the Jews in the ghetto that they had held them to. The Jews could only live unless they were, had some very special uh, kind of deal. But the vast majority of the Jews lived in what was called the Pale of Settlement. Anybody see Fiddler on the Roof? That was the Pale of Settlement. It was poor. It was destitute. They were not, the Jews were, or the, the Jews were not allowed to go to college. And they were just stuck there, basically kept as slaves to keep raising their feeble crops and and paying their taxes, but that was it. And every once in a while, the Russians would unleash hell, and they unleashed hell on them after the assassination of Tsar Alexander. And the Jewish intelligentsia rose up and said, after 1,800 years, enough. This has to stop. This experiment of us, who are so different, living among the other nations, has failed. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, said, we committed the sin of not defending ourselves. And so that was the birth of Zionism. And so there was a group called the Hovevi Zion Movement, and they were Russian Jews, and just a handful went down into Palestine, what they called Eretz Israel, and they started these little settlements. Now, why didn't the Turks stop them? Because the Turks were corrupt. And for them, that was way out in the middle of nowhere. And as long as they were collecting taxes, they didn't care, which is how the Jews got a foothold again. It was illegal. The Turks didn't want them there, but they weren't really paying attention. And a lot of them were bribed, or they bought land, or, they, or the Jews just got off a boat and just walked right in. And they started to get to work. I spoke about David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion used his life savings to go from Poland down to Palestine, got off the boat at Jaffa, and walked right in. And his job for the first few years that he was there was to go from one piece of land to another. And the land was desolate. It didn't grow anything. It was sand. It was desert. It was rocky. There were malarial swamps where, you know, the water had sat and just turned into a terrible, dangerous thing. And so David Ben-Gurion and others in his uh, generation took dynamite (laughs) into these areas, and they marked off a certain territory, and they blew up the rocks and pulled them out. And they would dig out the stumps and they would drain the malarial swamps until they got a place that was good enough to, to start to plant in. And at first they would plant things and everything died. But Baron Rothschild from France, a Jewish businessman who had done quite well, we know the Rothschild family, this was about the same time that Disraeli, another Jew, was prime minister of Great Britain. So there were Jews who had done well in the more lenient countries like France and like Britain. Later on, they didn't do so well, but at this time they were doing well. And Baron Rothschild heard about these settlements. He said, I want to help. And so he sent horticulturists to Eretz Israel to help them. And they said, citrus is your best deal. So they started planting citrus, lemon, 
grapefruit, oranges, and it took root. And then they said, vines, vineyards will do well. So they started planting vineyards, and they took root. And what happens when these plants grow? Leaves fall, fruit falls, it starts to turn into soil, and then you could start doing other things. And so they started pushing back the desert foot by foot, folks, foot by foot. Tel Aviv was sand dunes. Now it's one of the great cities on the Mediterranean, sand dunes. Heim Wiseman would become the first president of Israel. He was kind of the Ben Franklin of the Zionist movement. And when he first got to Israel, one of the, one of the uh, developers of Israel took him for a walk from Jaffa north onto the beach. And they walked for like a mile. He said the sand was above his ankles. And the, the guy stopped and he said, look around. This will be a great city. That would be like taking them to Beach 11 <laughs> and walking to the middle and saying, we're going to build a new town center right here. It just almost didn't make sense except for the fact that the Turks and the Arabs didn't care because it was wasteland to them. But to the Jews, it was homeland. And because it was homeland, they said, we're going to do this. And so they started... Petitikva was the very first settlement, now a beautiful, large, modern city. And then Rishon Zion, first in Zion, which was the next settlement. And Tel Aviv came a few years later, but little by little, they dug wells, they drained the swamps, they started to grow, and each generation grew a little bit more and pushed out a little bit more. Now, all of a sudden... There's a huge backlash in Russia. They're very angry that the Jews are rising up. And they hate the Jews in many ways anyway because they had a wrong understanding of the Bible. They didn't understand God's blessing on the people of Israel, and so they called them Christ killers. And there was a book written by... Sorry about that little water drop there. There was a book written by the Tsarist government called uh, The Protocols of the Elders of Israel. Some of you may have heard of this. It was complete fiction. And in it, they talked about the Jews killing babies and using the blood for their Passover satyrs. They talked about how the Jews wanted to take over the world and run all the banks, and they would become the master race, and everyone else would become the slaves. Well, guess who picked up a copy of that, and who's who's, who was influenced by it? Adolf Hitler. It was one of his favorite books. Total fiction, mind you, but he loved it. And so this was the kind of thing that was going on. And so in 1903 on Easter, uh, there was a pogrom, which was a, a out, out pouring of persecution on the Jews in a village called Kishnev. So you may have heard of the Kishnev pogrom. And at that time, on Easter morning, they went in there and they grabbed Jewish families and mowed them down with guns. They took babies and bashed their heads against concrete walls in front of their families. They threw people out of, elderly people out of windows. By the end of three or four days, there were Jews just, you could see this on Wikipedia, look it up, Kishnev pogrom. There's a whole line of dead Jews lined up on, on the road. Well, what had happened is those pictures that you now see on Wikipedia, someone had taken them secretly and got them out to the rest of the world. And world opinion came against the Russians at that time, and it gave some 
sympathy for the Jews, not only in Russia, but wherever they were being persecuted. And at that time, the greatest empire in the world was Great Britain. And Joseph Chamberlain was the colonial secretary, and he took the power that was given to him, and he went to the Zionists. Now, by this time, Herzl, uh, who was uh, an aristocrat, kind of, he was a newspaperman from Vienna, and he was, uh, you know, basically almost gave up his Judaism at one time until there was what was called the Dreyfus Affair, where a Jewish officer in the French army had been falsely accused, and they ripped off of his medals uh, after he was convicted, and they were going to send him to prison. But before they did that, they wanted to publicly shame him. So there were thousands of people there in Paris, I think, and they're all crying out, Death to Dreyfus! Death to Dreyfus! And Herzl's there writing it all down, and all of a sudden the mood changed, and they started yelling, Death to the Jews! Kill all the Jews! France, 1903. The whole mob turned and started saying, kill all the Jews. And Herzl was this guy who kind of just wanted to fit in, and all of a sudden he realized who he really was. And then he went and wrote The Jewish State, which was the book that really started influencing people around the world, Jews around the world. We need to go and have our home in Israel. Well, he died very young, 45 of heart disease, and the person who took his place was Heim Wiseman. But before this happened, the uh, Joseph Chamberlain from England came and spoke with Wiseman, or with Herzl, and said, we know what happened in Kishnev in Russia, and we want to help. The British Empire wants to help. So we want to give you, we've got this place in Africa called Uganda. We would like to give you Uganda. Did you know that that happened? The British government wanted to give Uganda to the Zionists. And so every year, Herzl had started the Jewish Congress. And so they gathered to vote, should we take Uganda? And Herzl sold it as a resting place until they get to Zion. And they voted, and the Zionists voted it down. And the one who led the charge was Heim Wiseman. And the reason was, he said, and he was Russian. And the whole Kitchnev, all the people from Kitchnev, they all voted against it. Even though they were the ones that they were saying, hey, look, look what happened there. And the reason that Wiseman, you know, his argument was, we cannot take our energy away from building a homeland in Zion to go build a homeland in Uganda. Because every year, from the time of AD 70 all the way up until that time, at the end of every Passover meal and Seder meal, they would say to each other, what? Next year in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was implanted in them by covenant. God gave that gift and he never took it away. He said, this will be your land forever. And so Wiseman said, well, for the first time, a nation has recognized the Jews in almost 2,000 years. And so even though he knows speak English oh so good, he went from Berlin, where he was a, prof a professor teaching chemistry, and he got a job in Manchester, England, which at the time people thought he was absolutely crazy because the Zionist movement was happening in Germany and Switzerland. But he saw England as the hope. And so he went there and they started, the Zionists in England started introducing him to the different um, members of parliament from Manchester. 
And one of the members of parliament from Manchester was a guy named Winston Churchill. <laughs> At this time, just a member of parliament. The other guy who was the member of parliament was a guy named Arthur Balfour. So of all the places in the world that Heim Wiseman could have gone, he went to a place where two of the most powerful men in the history of Great Britain in the 20th century were, at that time, local representatives. And so he got to know them. What he learned and what I learned in the research is that Winston Churchill was raised by Jews. Did you know that? Churchill's father died very young, and most of his friends were Jewish businessmen, Jewish politicians, the time of Disraeli. And so around his deathbed, these Jewish leaders said, we will help to raise your son. So Winston Churchill grew up loving the Jewish people, and he also grew up as what was called a restorationist. This was someone that's actually, you know, this has been in Christian theology all the way back to the New Testament, but it really became strong with the Puritans, and it was passed down, and the restorationists believed that the Jews needed to return to their homeland, and that would be the budding of the fig tree, which would bring the return of Jesus Christ. Winston Churchill was a restorationist. You know who else was a restorationist? Arthur Balfour, who was an evangelical, who was homeschooled and learned the Bible at the feet of his mother. You know who else was a restorationist? Prime Minister David, Be uh, David Lloyd George, who was an evangelical, homeschooled, taught the Bible at the feet of his mother, and was a restorationist, who all came together in power at the time when Great Britain was fighting the Turks in Palestine? David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, Arthur Balfour. Do you think God wasn't involved in this? These three men looked at what was happening, and they saw prophecy. Even though they had to have, you know, what was best for Great Britain at the forefront, they also saw that this could be what God wants for Great Britain. And that's when Winston Churchill said, if we bless Israel, we will be blessed as a nation. And so they worked with Heim Wiseman to develop what was called the Balfour Declaration. But then there was some resistance sadly, from an assimilated Jew who was going to India to be the person in charge of India. And before he left, he said, we don't want this. And he was basically afraid that he would lose his power, and they'd say, you have to go to Israel or to, to Palestine. It was a selfish situation, but it was still there. And they hesitated. And Wiseman said, ask the Americans. Who was president? Woodrow Wilson, son of a Presbyterian minister who believed that Israel needed to have their land. And so when they sent Woodrow Wilson the Balfour Declaration, he said, yes, it is a sin and it is wrong that the Jews do not have their land. I am completely in, uh, behind this. Now, my time is just about out, so let me wrap up. Enter, you know, we had the whole Holocaust and all of that. 1.5 million Jews remained after the war in concentration camps. They were called the displaced people. The British by this time were not being run by evangelicals. In fact, they had totally broken their, their promise with the Jews and gotten rid of the Balfour Declaration. They passed what was called the 1939 White Paper where they closed the door to immigration at the height of the Holocaust. When the Jews needed to get into the their promised land the most, the doors were slammed shut. 
And they said, after the war, we're going to give this land back to the Arabs. Why did they do that? Because they wanted Arab oil, because they were afraid of the Soviet Union and World War III. And Harry Truman came into the White House, and he was faced with this question. He felt for the families of the 6 million who had died and the 1.5 who were still there. He also knew his Bible, and he also knew human nature. And he said to his, by the way, almost all of his advisors said, don't recognize Israel. We need Arab oil. And he said, do you really think the Arabs are not going to sell us their oil (laughs) if we recognize Israel? I think they want money more than they are against the Jews. Well, of course, we know from history that he was right. However, he had so much pressure that nobody knew what he was going to do, and the British had turned the whole question over to the UN. The clock was ticking, and the Zionists were panicking, and nobody could get in to see Truman to find out what his decision was going to be or even to try to influence him because he had slammed the door shut because... Uh, you know, he had pressure from the State Department, pressure from the Arabs, pressure from the secular secularists, pressure from the Jews, and some of the Jewish leaders were rude to him, so he just said, I'm not going to hear from anyone. Well, the Zionists are like, we need to know, we don't think we've got the votes in the UN. What are we going to do? They couldn't get in until somebody said, I know a guy who used to be in business with Harry Truman, and he was his Jewish business partner, full circle. So they called Eddie Jacobson, Eddie, we need you to go in. You're the only one who could talk to Harry Truman. Eddie went in there, and Harry's secretary said, oh, hi, Eddie. He went in unannounced. You know, Eddie was his buddy, so they were like brothers still. And Eddie walks in, and the secretary said, hi, Eddie. And Eddie said, I'm here to see the president. He said, that's fine. Just don't talk about uh, Palestine or the Jews or the displaced persons. And Eddie said, that's the only reason I'm here. And he walked right in the door. And he sat down, and at first Truman was like, nope, I'm not talking to you. We're not going to talk about, we're not talking about this. And Eddie sat there, he said, my best friend right now is the biggest anti-Semite in the whole world. And he actually started to weep a little bit. Eddie did. And he's thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then he saw a bust of Andrew Jackson on Truman's desk, and he got an idea. He said, Harry, you're hero is Andrew Jackson. You've talked about him all our lives. He said, do you know who my hero is? And President Truman said, no, who's your hero? And he said, Heim Wiseman is my hero. He's an old man. He's almost blind. He's up in New York City waiting to see you, to talk to you, and you won't see him because some of our other leaders have been rude to you. You know that Heim Wiseman, you like Heim Wiseman. You're friends with Heim Wiseman, and you won't see him? Harry, I don't think that's like you. I thought you could take the heat in this place. (laughs) So Truman turns his chair around, looks out the window, tapping on his desk, and finally he turns his back to Eddie, and he says, all right, you bald-headed bleepity bleep, set up the meeting. And so they snuck... Heim Wiseman in so the press wouldn't see. And Harry Truman later said that it was in that meeting, Heim Wiseman and Eddie Jacobson convinced him to recognize Israel. And so at 11 minutes past midnight, Israel became a nation at midnight on May 15, 1948. 11 minutes later, Harry Truman became the first person, and America was the first nation to recognize the modern state of Israel. So a year later, the chief rabbi from Israel came to the White House and, Eddie, and Harry Truman said, do you know what I did to help with the rebirth of Israel? And the chief rabbi said, yes, like Esther of old, you were born for such a time like this. And Truman got out from, 
behind his desk. He had tears forming in his eyes. He said, do you really believe that? And, and Rabbi Herzog said, yes, like, like Cyrus of old, you were born for this purpose. So the year after, and I'll close with this, the year after Truman left the White House, uh, he was invited to speak at the Jewish seminary in Manhattan, and he was introduced by his Jewish business partner, Eddie Jacobson, and Eddie said, I'd like you all to welcome the man who helped in the rebirth of Israel, and everybody clapped, and Truman got up behind the lectern, and he said, Eddie, what do you mean helped? He said, I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus which is where I got the name of the book. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Pastor. Wow. Wow. That was an amazing job. I was trying to take notes down. I'm, the details are in the book. The details are in the book. I, was, I started writing down dates and stuff. I was like, man, I hope this stuff is covered in here. It is covered in there. And I know we got on recording too because we'll probably listen to it again. Uh, so I want to do two things uh, this evening before we close. Number one, uh, there is, again, I want to invite you to the book table out in the lobby. So if you uh, want to buy any of the three books that are out there, including this one, uh, which is very, very interesting, I think it's $15. $15. The other two are 10 So I encourage you to go out there. That is one way not only to bless Craig and his ministry and what he's got going, because we're looking forward to the next book now. I'm not sure what you're working on, but it takes five years. Right? So maybe you got something going. Uh, and then the other thing is we just want to bless you uh, with a, just with a blessing, a financial blessing. So if anyone's interested uh, to do that as well, just slip your hand up. We have some ushers that are going to come around uh, to be able to, uh, to do that. We're going to collect that offering here in just a minute. Give you guys a minute to uh, fill those out. If you need a pen or something as well, just slip your hand up. The ushers can help you with that. I love history myself, so I know what book you're going to be this is this is it. which book? Honey? Oh. <laughs> so I, I, I love I love how it all. I love the stories of how all the personalities and the interactions and just the friendships, how they all end up coming around and all that's happened. And I learned so much this evening as well. I will give you guys just a minute here. Let me just. I want to pray. Uh, one, just Craig, for you uh, and your family. I also want to pray uh, over this book. I mean, this is obviously a calling of God. Uh, as you had said, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, during a worship service, uh, you heard from the Lord almost audibly about doing this. And I, we, as you know, this church believes wholeheartedly in that, hearing from the Holy Spirit and moving in the directions that uh, God moves. And so I, let's pray uh, this evening that we all continue to hear from the Lord and hear what he has plans and purposes for each of our lives. And I also want to pray over this offering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you for uh, Dr. Craig and this amazing work and book that he has poured time and effort into. Father, I pray that you bless this book, that it'll just be, be a light that will be open, that people will understand the importance of this country, importance of Israel, and the plans and purposes that you have called from the beginning of time for this land. Father, we just thank you, Father, for the, for the nation of Israel. Father, we lift them up to you this evening in prayer. Father, bless them. Father, give them safety and protection. That your, that your hands will be around them. Your arms will be around them. Your angels will surround them, Father. Father, I just thank you for, for Dr. Craig and his family. Father, as you bless them. Uh, bless them indeed this summer as they get to travel. Father, bless the selling of this book, Lord. We just thank you for that. 
And Lord, we just thank you that we can hear from your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you, each and every one of us, you have a plan and a purpose for us. And for, for Dr. Craig was writing this book, but each and every one of us are called to a time as this, for a purpose as this, Lord. And I just pray that each of us continue to seek and fulfill your plans and your purposes in our lives. Father, just rise up a new passion within us. Give us confirmation from you and from others, Lord, of the callings that you have on our life. Give us confidence. Give us the grace. Give us the anointing. Give us just the the mercy to do what you have called us to go do. And Father, I thank you for Brother Paul. I thank you that he was diligent in doing that Bible study and that Bible teaching in the mornings. And there's evidence and there's fruit standing here writing a book, talking to us for what you've done. So let none of the work that we are doing, Father, ever fall on deaf ears. Father, you are blessed that work. You bless that work. Father, the fruit that is coming forth from each and every person that's pouring into other people's lives, we don't even know the magnitude of it, but you do, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the fruit that's coming from the works that you've put before us. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, if you want to wait on the people, uh, after the bucket goes by uh, your area, you guys are dismissed. So enjoy, have a great evening, and safe driving. Thank you for being a part of today's Faith Communications broadcast of Erie Christian Fellowship Church. If you do not currently have a church home, you are invited to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Erie Christian Fellowship is located at 5900 Saratania Road, directly across from the Walnut Creek Middle School. You'll find us on the web at www.ecfchurch.org where you may sign up to receive our monthly Faith Communications newsletter. Again, thanks for joining us today. And always remember 2 Corinthians 5-7 that declares, For we walk by faith, not by sight.